Well, hey there. Welcome to Mystery with a History. This is a podcast that looks at the who, what, when, where, and tries to find the why in a mystery. I'm Anomaly. And I'm Katie. And I'm sorry I sound like I'm 92 years old. I am getting over the flu. Who knew? I was so concerned with not getting COVID that I completely forgot to get my flu shot. Oh, no. (laughs) We, we got ours last week, which is probably way too late, but we did it anyway. I know. Better late than never. Um, yeah, it sucks. I highly do not recommend this to anyone. Um, we're recording over Zoom today because of my illness. Um, so if it sounds a little different, that's why. Um, but just bear with us and we're going to get this thing. I promise we're going to get it down. I'm hoping that next week we will be able to be back in Elroy Everyone will be illness-free, and we'll be back to recording in person, which I think is the best the best scenario. Absolutely. Guys, since we are a new podcast, it would be great if you could like and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow along on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mystery with a History Pod. Now that even though, Katie, we're recording this on Halloween, spooky season is pretty much over. It is, unfortunately. I know. I'm really sad about it. Um, So this time of year now, our thoughts turn from spooky ghosts and witches and goblins to food and family. (laughs) And gathering and And eating and harvesting. (laughs) Yes, harvesting. Reaping what we have sown and all that good stuff. And pilgrims, of course. Of course. On Mayflowers. Mayflowers, that's right. What's that joke? April showers bring Mayflowers and pilgrims? <laughs> I've never heard that joke. You've never heard that joke? It no. kills It kills in a first grade classroom. Oh, I bet it does. I bet <laughs> it does. So we're going to spend the next few episodes discussing interesting and mysterious food-related tales from around the country and the world. Isn't that right? Yes, and I can't wait. I know. I'm very excited. I'm especially excited to hear this tale that you have for us about a very bizarre occurrence. Um, It kind of sounds like a joke, but in actuality, it was pretty tragic. Yeah, absolutely. I know it sounds like it would be kind of a funny situation until you actually learn about it. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound like fun at all. No, no, not at all. Sounds like actually one of my worst nightmares. But anywho, um, today Katie is going to tell us about the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Now, Katie, where did that happen? In Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, the molasses capital of the world. Absolutely. Did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, I always think about the tea party, but I do not think about, um, I guess, Boston baked beans and brown bread, right? Kind of uh, come out of Boston. Right. So that's cool. All right. Well, why don't you tell us about the, the molasses flood? All right. Here we go. All right, Anomaly, I don't know about you. But when I think of a flood of molasses, I think of something that moves incredibly slow. Oh, yeah. Like in a horror movie where your female character is running through the dark night as fast as she possibly can, 
and then the scary killer is walking behind her at a slow, steady pace, he shouldn't catch up with her, yet somehow he always does. Yes. Or The Blob. I mean, I immediately think of that movie, The Blob. Did you ever see that? You know, I watched that movie to sleep over when I was in, like, second grade, and it traumatized me. It's pretty traumatizing (laughs) because it is so slow, but somehow the protagonists are unable to outrun this giant, slow-moving ball of slime. Right. Something that moves incredibly slow is what comes to my mind when I think about the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Like, why couldn't you just outrun it? I mean, there's a famous saying, slower than molasses in January. And even though the molasses flood happened in January, it moved incredibly fast and it was incredibly deadly. All right, so I'm going to give you a disclaimer. If Doc Brown Anomaly ever shows up in front of your house, Ms. DeLorean, and asks you when you want to go, don't pick 1918 or 1919. So, but we are going to take that trip for our listeners so they don't have to. So, Anomaly, let's put on our newly fashionable loose flowy dresses. Let's top off the look with a big fancy hat. And let's hook Elroy up to a Ford Model T sedan. And let's take a trip back to the first days of the year 1919. President Woodrow Wilson was sitting in the newly finished Oval Office in the White House. And Armistice Day had only happened less than two months earlier in November of 1918. World War I was horrific, but it was coming to an end. Germany was running out of options in the battle, so at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, the front lines quieted and soldiers were told the fighting was over and peace negotiations began to end the war. But things back in the United States during this time weren't great. The term shell-shocked is appropriate and it was also named during this time. Soldiers were coming home from war and were never the same again. The United States was facing an economic hardship that turned into a full-on post-war recession, and the return of soldiers meant an abundance of workers for limited job opportunities. Now, as you can imagine, a bunch of men coming home from war with no jobs to be had led to racial tension, terrible violence, and widespread riots that would come to be known as the Red Summer of 1919. Wow, I've never heard about that. We'll have to do an episode on that later, but it's, it's a sad one. Um, let's see. 1918 was also really similar to 2020. There was a pandemic going around at the time. At the time, it was called the Spanish flu. Now we call it the Great Influenza of 1918. Um, it would end in the deaths of around 50 million people. Uh, folks back then were even wearing masks and businesses and schools were closing to stop the spread of the virus. It sounds so familiar. Right. But they didn't have Netflix and DoorDash back then, so it probably was a little Mm. more difficult. And they definitely weren't Zooming with friends. Yeah, that's a pretty big disadvantage. As if things weren't difficult enough, on January 16, 1919, the states ratified prohibition. And one year later, the sale and distribution of alcohol became illegal, making the United States dry. (laughs) But our story takes place one day earlier. On January 15, 1919, around lunchtime in Boston, Massachusetts, it was a nice 45 degrees, chilly to me, but an unseasonably warm day for a Boston winter. According to an account in Scientific American, quote, Patrolman Frank McManus picked up a call box on Commercial Street, contacted his precinct station, and began his daily report. Moments later, he heard a sound like machine guns and an awful grating. 
He turned to see a five-story high metal tank split open, releasing a massive wall of dark amber fluid. Temporarily stunned, McManus turned back to the call box. Send all available rescue vehicles and personnel immediately, he yelled. There's a wave of molasses coming down Commercial Street. End quote. I bet temporarily stunned has got to be an understatement. I mean, that is probably the least likely thing you'll ever expect to see on your shift as a police officer. I mean, if I turned around and saw a tank of molasses exploding behind me, I mean, gobsmacked seems like an appropriate term. (laughs) Yes, yes, that is the perfect term. But you'll be glad to know, Anomaly, that Officer McManus, he survived the initial explosion. He ran up a side street. He was able to take cover. And then he was able to come back and assist people after the Great Flood moved through the area. The results of a tank of molasses breaking in Boston's north end were horrifying. First, the bolts holding together this large 2.3 million gallon tank of fermenting molasses sheared off. And they went flying, creating damaging shrapnel. An article for the Boston Discovery Guide explains, quote, The explosion also created a vacuum immediately after the initial blast, which destroyed even more buildings, dragged a truck across a street, and pulled a train off the tracks. And then the flood of molasses began. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, it was... That's crazy. It was terrifying because, you know, the the force of this huge five-story tank exploding. Mm-hmm. I mean, it shot bolts everywhere like bullets. They said something like it cut through train trestles. It was so oh my forceful. Gosh. And then 2.3 million gallons, did you say? Yes. That's, I can't even fathom that amount of anything. Seems like a lot of, mol- I mean, just think about if like your hot water tank exploded in your house. Right, I mean, that's- exactly. Now, Anomaly, let's get ready for a little science time. Okay. Molasses is thicker than water, and it moves in a different way. It's one of those weird, it's kind of a solid, but it's also kind of a liquid, non-Newtonian fluids. Now, if you're like me, you only know that word for making oobleck with elementary school kids out of cornstarch and water. You gotta love the oobleck. You love oobleck, especially when you put it on the speaker and bump, 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 it dances, you know? Oh, did you actually do that? No, but I've seen it on a video. I didn't have one of those big speakers, so... The molasses that escaped from its tank moved the way non-Newtonian fluids do. Scientific American explains that it's like a tube of toothpaste, another non-Newtonian fluid. Toothpaste, or molasses, doesn't slosh around in the tube or the molasses tank. But squeeze a toothpaste tube or burst a fermenting tank of molasses with a sudden force, and the toothpaste molasses suddenly moves at a very high rate of speed. When the tank failed, a similar thing happened with the molasses. It has to do with fluid dynamics and gravity currents. Um, And I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I understand the nuts and bolts, but basically the molasses moved like a large avalanche. I have so many questions about this whole experience, but I'm sure you're going to answer them. But this is just crazy to even think about this happening. I mean, it's, it seems like, yeah, it seems like that once it starts, there's something called like sheer force. And then once this, mm-hmm. this mountain of molasses suddenly had gravity pulling on it, it moved at this incredibly fast rate of speed. Oh, yeah. Experts calculated that it moved in a thick wave at speeds probably around 35 miles per hour. Now, it wasn't a small wave. We're talking about a tsunami of molasses. 
The U.S. Census Bureau stated that this 2.3 million gallon wave was 26 million pounds and 40 feet in height. This not only knocked down any structures in its wake, but it also moved fast enough to trap the people and animals in its path. The event spread in a 250 foot radius in Boston's crowded North End. Oh, no. Now, I found a great article on Boston.com that featured firsthand accounts from that day. One's from a man named B.E. Kingsley. He was an office worker in the nearby railway offices. And he remembers, quote, where the tank stood, there was no tank. Instead, a mighty wall of some kind, a giant wave of molasses. And it was sweeping rapidly down the office, gaining momentum every second. I turned and ran into the outer office, calling a warning to the clerks there. It was too late. A second later, it seemed there was a crash. Doors and windows were as if none had existed. The molasses poured in. The wave was 15 feet high when it struck the building, and everything in the office, including myself and the clerks, was toppled over like nine pins under the weight of the wave, end quote. Now, since it was a warm day in January, the molasses probably moved faster, but as night fell, so did the temperatures, and of course, this wave of liquid molasses became thicker trapping people and structures, and it made rescue efforts nearly impossible. It almost acted like a glue. So as the night cooled and things started to Mm -hmm. thicken, when people were trapped under structures, Mm -hmm. it almost became all glued together. Oh, my goodness. So trying to pull people out of the wreckage was almost impossible. Mm. In the end, the Great Molasses Flood killed 21 people, and it injured 150. There were also 12 horses and an unknown number of dogs and cats killed in the flood. All right, so now let's sprinkle in a few whys in this molasses mystery, since that's what we're here for. Why did the tank explode in the first place? And why on earth did Boston even have that much molasses? Yeah, that's my question. Why? Why? I mean, how many baked beans can you be making? I don't, I don't even like molasses, to be honest. No, it's an acquired taste. <laughs> It's an acquired smell. I don't like the mm, way it Yeah, the smell is kind of weird. So the first question, why did the tank explode in the first place, came down to flawed tank design and human mismanagement. The tank exploded because basically the metal was too thin and the rivets were inadequate to hold the load. It was filled to capacity only days before the explosion occurred. And it was already known to those around that the design was bad. I mean, the tanks audibly groaned every time they were filled. And the seams leaked. It was documented that kids would even come and collect molasses when it would seep out of the cracks. The company painted the tanks brown to disguise the brown liquid that would leak out. Complaints and concerns were dismissed with, well, nothing bad has happened yet. So, I mean, that seems like a a good response to... I think so, yeah. It seems like uh, that's big business's response to a lot of things. It has nothing bad has happened yet. Let's just paint it brown and pretend like nothing's wrong. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's what I do. Uh, the second why, why did Bostonians have so much molasses? Did they really love molasses? Um, that one's a little more complicated to answer. Molasses is what is left over after you boil down sugar cane to get out the sugar. You can cook with it. You can make rum out of it. And it even has uses in munitions manufacturing. So let's start with rum. Boston was one point in the triangular trade. English colonies in Jamaica and Barbados used enslaved people to produce sugarcane, and they produced it into molasses. The molasses was shipped to Boston, and it was turned into rum. 
The rum was shipped across the ocean to Africa, where it was traded for more enslaved people, and those people were shipped back to the islands to work and grow more sugarcane. It was a terrible triangular-shaped trade route of human trafficking. Now, by 1919, Boston was still a big hub for rum production, even though the slave trade had ended more than a century earlier. Hence, their need to store a crazy amount of molasses. Now, let's move on to the second reason why there was so much molasses being stored in Boston. As the World War II era song and later the country group The Chicks would sing, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition anomaly, we're going to focus on this tank of molasses and its use in munitions manufacturing. Oh, interesting. Remember that the beginning of the end of World War I had only occurred months earlier. The faulty tank was owned by a company called United States Industrial Alcohol. The molasses was to be used in industrial alcohol manufacturing to produce ammunition and supplies for the war. It also helps to explain one reason why this tank was so quickly and shoddily built. It was a wartime construction that was needed very quickly. Uh Uh-huh. So, was there anything positive that came out of this terrible tragedy? Well, kind of, yeah. Legally speaking, this event spurred some positive changes in construction safety. According to Stephen Puleo, an article for NPR, 119 plaintiffs sued United States Industrial Alcohol, and it was the beginning of class action lawsuits. The trials were also the beginning of expert witnesses being called in to testify. Puleo went on to say that the case changed the relationship between business and government. Quote, all of the things we now take for granted in business that architects need to show their work, that engineers need to sign and seal their plans, that building inspectors need to come out and look at projects, all of that comes as a result of the Great Boston Molasses Flood case, end quote. That's amazing. And that anomaly is the story of the Great Molasses Flood. Well, it's a shame that people had to die so that we could have some basic legislation for that stuff happening. Uh, It's just, what a shame. Right. And I mean, some of the, you know, some of the things we take for granted today as far as workplace safety mm-hmm. and construction safety happened at the expense of these great tragedies. So yeah, absolutely. This is one of them. Um, well, I normally am not a big consumer of molasses, but normally around this time of year, I do molasses spice cookie recipe, which I will put in the show notes. It's a Martha Stewart recipe, and it is to die for. It's got cinnamon, nutmeg, and molasses, and then you roll them in sugar for a satisfyingly sweet crunch. They are delicious. Sounds amazing. Yeah, and of course, you can't make a gingerbread men without a hefty dollop of molasses in there. Unless you just buy the kit from the grocery store. Don't do it. (laughs) I mean, I have a jar of grandma's molasses that I bought during COVID in my pantry. And so it's, what, two years old now? And I still haven't figured out what to do with it. It was one of those, I'm going to buy this because good bakers have molasses (laughs) in the pantry. It's true. It's true. Uh, Well, Katie, I found a really little interesting bit of information from KingArthurBaking.com about molasses because I knew that you were going to be talking about this today. All right, Um, I want to hear it. And I really can't say it better than King Arthur Baking. So let's begin with this quote. In colonial times, it was commonly used, molasses, in tandem with honey as a principal sweetener. Refined sugars were too expensive for most households, so baking with molasses became the norm appearing in staples like anadama and brown bread. I've never heard of anadama before. 
I'm going to have to investigate into that. Baked beans, of course, and gingerbread. As a result, we're left with a national memory of its flavor. With its caramel notes and slightly bitter undertone, it still claims a place in our cooking. It anchors the spices in barbecue sauces, brings its complexity to frostings and cakes, and is also delicious drizzled over cornbread. Have you ever had molasses on cornbread? I have not. Oh, okay. Let's try it. Despite the rise of other sweeteners, when we encounter a molasses cookie, it's like meeting an old friend, end quote. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to try to figure out what to do with that two-year-old jar of molasses, I guess, now. Well, I feel like, you know, you only really use a couple tablespoons at a time, so that jar might last you another few years. It might. All right, dear listeners, well, that is it for our mystery today. We really hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you, and I, again, apologize for my creaky, squeaky voice (laughs) that hopefully will be resolved by the next uh, recording day. Again, if you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing. And don't forget, you can check us out on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we'll post some images that go along with today's show. If you'd like to find out more information about our stories, be sure to check out the sources in the show notes. For today's episode, I use the following sources. An article from history.com on the Spanish flu. An article from History.com called Why Was the Great Molasses Flood So Deadly? An article from BostonDiscoveryGuide.com called The Great Molasses Flood in Boston, Disaster in Boston's North End. A fantastic article from ScientificAmerican.com called The Science of the Great Molasses Flood. An article from NPR.org called A Deadly Tsunami of Molasses in Boston's North End some statistics from census.gov, and an article on Red Summer from the worldwar.org website. Awesome. Well, that was a super interesting story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, thank you for listening. Yeah, and that's it for us for today. And until next time, stay stay curious. curious. Bye. Bye.